I would guess where you have a Christian-based audience, they would resonate with the choices that I had made at a very young age to live a very virtuous life and was very intentional that way um, and had been very um, guarded of my, of my virtue. And to find out that the man that I was intending to marry in just a few months hadn't been through that, it was just such a disorienting experience and very shocking. Welcome to Stories of Hope in Hard Times, the show that explores how people endure and even thrive in difficult times, all with God's help. I'm your host, Tamara K. Anderson. Join me on a journey to find inspiring stories of hope and wisdom learned in life's hardest moments. My next guest lives in Brigham City, Utah with her husband, Mark. She earned degrees in nursing and music from BYU-Idaho and is always in the middle of a good book or two as a passionate lifetime learner. She shares that love for learning as a full-time homeschooling mom with her four young energetic children. And when she isn't with the kids, she's probably helping to lead and serve the women of her church congregation, teaching one of her yoga therapy courses, or working with one of her brain wellness clients as a certified practitioner for a protocol called quantum neuro reset therapy. She feels it is her mission to help people heal from trauma, increase their awareness and consciousness, and guide others to find Jesus Christ personally. I am pleased to introduce Katie Willis. Katie, are you ready to share your story of hope? Yes. Awesome. Well, you told me before we started this interview that you had recently helped save a man's life. (laughs) And so I I just, I can't get over that. I have to have you tell me that story just really quick to kind of break the ice a little bit. (laughs) You're so funny. funny. Well, maybe it sounds like a bigger deal than it really was. Um, I was recently at a meeting um, in the city where I live. Our church puts on a facility similar to like a food pantry. And so we were at that meeting and it was towards the end, the gentleman who was presenting, I noticed was sweating in bullets and his hands were shaking Mm -hmm. and it was hot in the room. So I was thinking, okay, maybe he's sweating, you know, because of that and maybe just shaking because he's tired. And we had the closing prayer and then I looked over and he was like slumped along the side. (laughs) And so I went up to him and I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, I'm diabetic and I didn't eat dinner before I came. And he drove about an hour, you know, up to this meeting and had already been to a meeting prior, you know, a few hours. Anyway, so we looked around this food pantry and there was nothing high sugar enough, you know, that could kick it. They only stock candy around the holidays. And so like there was milk, there was bread, but nothing high sugar. And I said, okay, I live a couple blocks away. I'll be right back. Um, there was another gentleman who noticed what was going on and he was an EMT. So he came over and, um, you know, hung out with this guy and I pick up the phone and I call my husband and I'm like, Mark, I don't have time to talk, but what I need you to do is take a container of orange juice concentrate and set it on the porch. And Mark is just an amazing man. He read between the lines and he's even stuck a spoon (laughs) out. So I grabbed the orange juice. I, you know, brought it back and we were able to get it in his system. He ate probably half the can and, 
and, you know, watched him for a little bit and his color came back and, you know, sweating had slowed down and he got his strength back. And um, we recently met again as this committee. I'm on part of this committee. And I, I said to him, he said, thanks again, you know, for saving me. That was the lowest my blood sugars ever dropped. And, and I was like, the part I didn't tell you is that I held the can between my thighs <laughs> as I drove back in order to kind of thought enough that we could get a spoon in there. But yeah. anyway, it just was interesting to have that information pop in my head at the right time of all the random things that I learned in nursing school another lifetime ago. But yeah, those things that we learn often, I think they're filed away somewhere in a filing in a container yeah. in our brain. And sometimes the right situation will pop up and it'll just bonk. Oh, yeah, yeah I know what to do here. Right. We need concentrated orange juice. <laughs> Don't ask me how I remember that all these years later. But <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, I'm glad you're able to use your knowledge to help him (laughs) and save his life. Oh my gosh. So let's dive into a little bit more of your story. Um, And why don't we go back to you getting married to Mark? Tell me, tell me a little bit, just a little bit of backstory here. Okay. Um, So my husband and I met on a blind date. It was probably the most awkward date I ever went on. Um, Long story short, we figured it out. And um, during our engagement, Mark told me that he had struggled basically his entire youth with pornography, sex addiction, masturbation. And... um, And then right after he told me, his mom came in the room, you know. So it just like, you know, hung in the air and, and... and I couldn't ask him all of my questions and my mind was swirling. I didn't even know what to ask, you know. I don't have a memory of if I drove home that night or if he drove me home that night. But I'm sure you can imagine I didn't sleep most of that night. You know, just just agonized where um, I, I would guess where you have a Christian-based audience, they would resonate with the choices that I had made at a very young age to live a very virtuous life and was very intentional that way um, and had been very um, guarded of my of my virtue. And to find out that the man that I was intending to marry in just a few months hadn't been through that, it was just such a disorienting experience and very shocking. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget um, having stayed up most of that night praying as the sun was rising and the night was ending, it came to me very clearly. God just very lovingly and gently saying, okay, Katie, this does not change what I've known. And so every time that you have come to me and you've asked me as you and Mark were dating more seriously or as he proposed to you, if if this was going to be the right choice to marry him, I've told you yes every time. And I've known every time you've asked me. Now this is changing what you know, Katie, but... It doesn't change what God It does not change. And so this is still the right, you know, the right man, a good choice for you to marry. And so I came back to Mark. The one regret I have at that time and would encourage anybody who's in a similar situation to seriously consider would be to get professional help even at that point. We didn't, we didn't talk to anybody. I didn't counsel with our clergy. I didn't, you know, again, reach out to any professionals. We just felt like he had been sober for about two years by that point. And we didn't understand there was a difference between sobriety and just white knuckling and, and 
you know, kind of holding on and not acting out on the addiction versus recovery, where an individual goes in and digs up by the roots and looks at their patterns and their programming and allows Jesus Christ to change their heart, right? So he had been sober and we felt like we would never deal with addiction again. So I would encourage individuals to reach out, to get help. And even at that point, that's going to be so much smarter, you know, to go in with your eyes wide open and be aware. And just because a person has had that past doesn't mean that that's necessarily their future, but it would be very smart to explore that because of how um, far reaching the entanglements of addiction are and how deep the roots of addiction, regardless of the type of addiction that it is, can be. Right. So would you recommend counseling both for the future spouse as well as the person who has had now now we haven't even dived into any of this yet but but i know that there are counselors specific for sexual addictions is that the type of counseling you would recommend pre-marriage or yes let me give you let me give you maybe an analogy that might might help Uh, Okay, let me pause and say a sentence or two, and then I'll give you that analogy. You know, it's interesting because some people think that any old family, you know, marriage therapist will do. And sometimes have looked at me or my husband like, we're crazy when we say get specialized help. But it would be like me showing up at my family doctor's office with a severely broken arm like a compound fracture that the bone is sticking out. It's not that that's not a good family doctor. It's just that that's not in his scope of practice. He will refer us, he or she will refer us to an orthopedic surgeon, right? And so jumping right in with the specialties that you're talking about, Tamara, would be a certified sex addiction therapist. I highly recommend that. There's something called secondary trauma. And what that means is individuals who've been traumatized, if they reach out for help and they don't get the support from family or friends, they're invalidated. Or as they even reach out to professionals who don't really understand how to approach it, it can cause another layer of trauma on top of the trauma. So like, for example, if you reached out to someone and they were supposed to help you and they didn't. And they feel maybe more broken or something exactly. like I t- reached out and they didn't help me. Yes. And think about what that could potentially teach an individual that, you know, Satan and his little henchmen are so eager to reach their hand in our lives anytime there's an opening, right? So for an individual to go through something like that, maybe they'd pick up something like, see, I can't ever speak up because they won't get the help that I need or I'm bad or I'm wrong or, you know, the individual pick up those specific things. So um, I would highly recommend just jumping straight to a certified sex addiction therapist. The cool thing is there are a lot of even online resources now if there isn't one in a person's area. And then I would add one more level as well that we were very, very fortunate. We went through four different therapists once. I know we're getting ahead. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We're, we're jumping the gun. Once here. we finally, I mean, you can probably guess our lives crumbled. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be, you know, talking this episode. But um, we went through four different therapists. They did the best they knew how, but they could not help us before we finally found a certified sex addiction therapist. And the particular therapist that I worked with was not only a CSAT but she had additional training in the trauma that a partner or spouse goes through, which is called betrayal trauma. So I would highly recommend, like you clarified, not only the individual who has struggled with addiction, even if it's not present, that they're presently acting out on it would be a better way to say that. 
but the potential spouse, if if they are getting serious about a marriage relationship, I would highly recommend both go in at least, you know, do a consultation and see how they feel about it. I want to be very careful not to make any blanket statements because are there individuals who maybe really truly never have it surface again? Probably. Right. However, I think the mass, the vast majority from my experience of interacting with others as a, as a mentor and a facilitator um, and in my professional work as well, that's a super rare case right. that an individual doesn't go to the recovery depths and then never like is able to white knuckle for the rest of their lives. Does that right? Make sense? Yeah, yeah. So it just helps to make sure for both of you, so that you have the resources you need, so that if it does crop up, you both know what to do. Yeah, I love that, and I think when we have those resources readily available, the sooner we can reach out to those, the better. Yeah. And so if they're already in place. So much better for that couple. What were you going to say? Well, I was just saying, we'll be sure to list and talk more in detail about the resources you recommend at the end of the podcast, but, and, and that will be in the show notes for the podcast as well. So if anybody is looking for those specific resources, we'll put links at the end. Awesome. So, so here you are, you're engaged. You had this awesome experience with God, um, telling you that he knew all along, right? There's nothing we can keep from God and you got married and life, of course, has its ups and downs. And, and why don't you go ahead and do a brief summary of, of what life looked for you in those early years of marriage? At the time that we got married, we were both full-time students. We had, I'm trying to remember, maybe about two years left before we both graduated. So we were both working and both in school and had some amazing, amazing teamwork. Um, at that point, I had just a few months left of my nursing degree and took boards and passed boards and started working night shifts in the city next door. Mark was a saint. His parents lived in that same city. And so he would drive me down on my night shifts and spend the night at his parents' house. I could sleep home on the way and I'd get a couple hours of sleep before I'd have to get up and go to school. And if he had not driven me back and forth, you know, we would not have been able to make that work. And then our very last semester before we graduated, we got pregnant with our first child, our daughter, Seneca, who's now 12. And um, Mark had a great job. He became a part owner of a small computer repair and sales shop. And, you know, good, stable job. We welcomed two more babies really close. We had a total of three kids in three years. <laughs> and... Um, both of our pregnancies with our boys, we we had high-risk pregnancies. I ended up on bed rest for months at a time where we had part of the placenta pull away at 26 and 16 weeks for those two pregnancies. So, you know, further teamwork as Mark was still working full-time and then would come home and carry a heavy load at home trying to move laundry and clean and, you know, prep meals. And our church congregation was phenomenal, you know, to do what they could. But again that put the most weight on him and we got through we we got that that last little guy safe and sound he was born in august and we're like whoo we made it and we're adjusting to life with three little kids and a newborn and then in december mark lost his job and at first he was just so gung-ho like it's gonna be okay it's gonna be fine and looking back i think if he had hit the unemployment fresh if we hadn't had 
you know, so much with those high risk pregnancies and just the emotional. And I mean, even the physical, we were going to the doctor with that third baby every week or every other week from 16 weeks till he was born. So just, you know, a lot emotionally and a lot spiritually as well, you know, for our faith to hold on through that. And so when he hit the unemployment, um, he was so gung ho and applying nationwide. And I would say probably 80, 85% of the time he would come up as second choice over and over, like clear through the final interview and everything. And then he'd say, well, what can I do to be a better candidate? And they're like, nothing. You were actually great. You were actually our second choice. We just didn't choose you. And so over time, I noticed that, um, like, you know, at first he was like suit and tie and clean shaven every day, even if he's just going to sit at the computer and submit applications. But then over time, like he's in his jammies and he's, you know, scruffy and just starting to struggle more. And and I don't know if you want me to kind of transition here, Tamara, or do you want to ask anything? (laughs) No, no, that's great. So, so he started to struggle and you're starting to notice that he's starting to struggle. Um, what, what were some of the other signs that you noticed that perhaps besides just him, um, not shaving and not right. getting dressed and right. you know, obviously right. he's dipping into a bit of a depression here yeah. because of, it's a situation. It's a situational right. depression, totally. right? Right. Yeah. right? Right. Right. Um, so what I observed from him was actually physical symptoms next. And he um, did not change the way that he ate or his exercise routine. He dropped about 15, 20 pounds, just boom. And um, he would struggle with sleep. Even if he had eight, 10 hours, he would still start to nod off. Like even in the middle of the day, he would be in the middle of talking to me or other people and in the middle of a word and just kill over dead asleep. And I, I distinctly remember, you know, we had that new baby. He was probably, what, six, nine months around this time maybe. Um, Because it was the beginning of that next year. And he would be rocking the baby, standing, rocking the baby. And you know how when you nod off and like that head jerk sensation jolts you awake. Well, he would be nodding off and his arms would start to relax. So then the weight of the baby hitting his arms would be what would jolt him awake. So it was just unnerving. And having my medical background, I started dragging him to doctors and I'm like, something's wrong with my husband. And they draw all the labs. We even did two different sleep studies. One of them, he stayed all night and they monitored him and they're like, Katie, you're crazy. Nothing's wrong. Mm -hmm. We can't pick up on anything. He's fine. But in my gut, I knew. Something's wrong. Yes. So then several months went by and we began seeing it in the mental realm to where he got to the point he would have basically a three-day cycle where he would be so anxious he'd stay up all night and then within a few days crash so low he was suicidal and so you know then I'm trying to get him mental health help and trying to find a therapist who can help him and can help us and you know what's going on and eventually he was diagnosed by one doctor who I mean I'm sure Mark will listen to this podcast he was weird. Mark was so weird at this time. He was not himself. He was out of his mind. And so we had one doctor who like was in the room with him maybe five minutes and was like, it's obvious he's bipolar too, which I mean, you didn't have to be with Mark at that point to, for very long to pick up that something was very wrong, you know, by how, by how, by this point, you know? Um, and then, 
a psychiatrist that he had been working with diagnosed him as having anxiety depression. He was prescribed medications for everything, but he refused everything. And short term, that was a living hell, having, you know, these three little kids and feeling like the weight of keeping my husband alive was kind of on my shoulders and, and, and feeling, um, you know, reaching out to um our bishop in my faith so you know our our pastor equivalent to our pastor our clergy member and um you know he did the best that he could but he knew this was beyond him so he was encouraging us well you need professional help well we can't find professional help and it just was such a scary dark time i was doing everything that i felt like i could to bring the spirit and a good feeling into our home um i never stopped reading my scriptures i never stopped praying but it was almost like Mark would walk in the door and he was just surrounded. Like he just had such a dark countenance. It was like he was surrounded with this dark cloud. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. So that, that was kind of the symptoms that I was picking up on. I, I knew something was terribly wrong, but I had no physical evidence. And as I'd go to Mark, he would say, well, it's not me. It must be you. And so I really was feeling like, I just don't know. I just don't know what I'm talking about. And it had been such a long time since I'd felt the spirit with clarity, even though I was doing everything that I knew would bring, you know, that spirit into my mind and my heart and my home. It was just such a confusing time. And, and, and I don't know if you've ever heard of the term gaslighting. I've heard the term. Why don't you explain it? Well, I had, I had one of my yoga therapy students who explained it with some backstory that was so cool. It, she said it comes from a movie from the 1940s where I'm probably going to totally slaughter it, but where it used to be, if you could prove that your spouse was incompetent, then you could get their, you know, money or whatever. And so this husband married a young wife and then would try to convince her that she was crazy. So, you know, the example that she shared from the movie is they would be walking down the stairs and he would turn the light off and she'd say, it's dark. And he's like, no, it's not. It's bright as noonday sun. And so when we gaslight somebody, we're trying to convince them that what they know isn't actually true. And, and individuals struggling with addiction, this can very often go hand in hand. Um, there was gaslighting that I feel like from Mark was genuinely unintentional. I mean, it still happened. Mm-hmm but genuinely unintentional. But the whole reason why I'm talking about gaslighting is I was gaslighting myself. I knew that something was wrong, but I was trying to convince myself that I was just crazy where, you know, very early on I'd been reaching out for help and support and everybody was like, no, there's no evidence. You need, you're probably like, maybe I am crazy. Yes. I really did get to that point where I'm like, I just must be crazy. And there were individuals, um, we were, we were very tight lipped for a very long time mm-hmm. that things were as bad as they were. Right. Even with our family, mm-hmm. we were very good at putting up a front and there were individuals who cared about us and did the best that they could. But that kind of contributed to that gaslighting as well that, you know, they'd have a conversation with Mark and hear from his perspective and then come back around trying to support him but it only contributed to that gaslighting and that confusion that I had where I'm like, gosh, my gut is saying something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the interesting thing, Tamara. Um, not to do like a spoiler, but <laughs> later, um, probably about a year later after this time that I'm describing right now with just, you know, confused and darkness and 
um, we sat down knee to knee with professionals who were very qualified to help us. And Mark had taken months to prepare on his own and then prepare with his therapist in individual sessions. And then finally he presented it to his group in his group therapy program. And he cataloged out his addiction in a narrative. It wasn't just, okay, I did this one thing and there's this other thing here. Like it was like, let me start at the beginning of first exposure and let me lay it all out and show how it's all interrelated and how, I mean, Mark was phenomenal, like how it's not only the pornography and the sex, but that it's also seeping into the ways that I eat and, you know, the distractions that I'm turning to. And it was 20 pages single space typed and that day that I heard it his therapist was there to keep him honest Mm -hmm. and in truth Mm -hmm. and my therapist was there to gauge how I was doing she would slow it down and say do you have any questions do you need to know more are you okay um anyway hearing this every time that there was something that happened or that Mark was trying to act out I found out that day I was right I knew so your gut every time right. my gut was spot on every time, but I didn't have the physical evidence. Mm-hmm. And as I'd come to him and be like, he'd be like, nope, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was such a bittersweet moment mm-hmm. to, to find out later that yeah. I knew, but I was gaslighting myself. So yeah. I wasn't willing to lean into that, you know, that gut mm-hmm. instinct there. Absolutely. So, so what was the what was the day that changed everything? When did you finally realize okay, he's he's having problems with pornography? Sure. So it got to be more and more normal that Mark would call me towards the end of his work day and say, I'm too anxious to come home. And where his parents lived in the neighboring city, he would go spend the night at their house. And I got to the point where I had, without any coaching from anybody, just innately had come up with kind of a little script. So I would basically say to him, Mark, I want you to come home. I think you should come home, but you need to choose for yourself. And every time he'd go (laughs) anyway. And so um, it had been one of those nights. And that time I had felt so sick to my stomach. And I remember pleading like even more fervently than normal and very emotional. And he still went and he left. And um, the next day he called me and he said, Katie, I need to tell you where I went last night. I went to a strip club. And here I had those three precious little babies. I was a stay-at-home mom. I was home where I should have been, tucking our kids in bed. And here he was at a strip club. And I don't remember a lot after that call. I remember my first reaction was actually relief. Like, just like we just talked about. Oh my gosh. I'm not crazy. I am not crazy. Exactly. But that was like 10 seconds. (laughs) Because then it's like, what are we going to do? And, you know, so angry and so hurt and so betrayed. And, you know, well, if we went to a strip club, what? else has been going on and how long has it been going on and um you know just just the shock within a few hours set in and the cool thing about our brains is god designed them as the rest of our body just so masterfully that when we hit 
like our max capacity, it shuts off. It does. You know? Yeah. No, I know. (laughs) And so um, it shut off and I lived as a shell of a person for about two years. And um, I think that would probably be a very typical reaction, you know, of people just withdrawing into themselves and saying, I don't know what to do. Therefore, I'm so overwhelmed and, and, and I'm just, I'm just going to pause here and let myself process all this and try to figure it out. Probably, probably it gives your time, your brain time to figure out, to put the pieces together, to figure out the truth. Yeah, I love that. I think, and I've seen so many women who launch into anger and get stuck into anger, which totally makes sense. I always teach um, my yoga students, even my little kid yogis, anger is a secondary emotion, meaning that there's something underneath that, very often grief or sadness. And so, I mean, every, every woman's reaction is going to be different, but there are some very common things that... A lot of women can forget to even eat. They can't sleep. Um, they're, it's, it, is, it is not impossible, but it is very difficult to not take such a discovery personally, right? Yeah. And for me, it was like, well, here I am having given birth to these three babies in three years. I've breastfed them all. Like, I have stretch marks. I'm saggy. You know, like my body's different than it used to be. And... I mean, now it's comical, but this is really where my brain went. I'm like, oh my gosh, of course you'd have to turn there. Because look at me. I'm a dump. I'm not even taking a shower every day. I mean, but the thing that's funny to me now is like, well, duh. You just had three babies in three years and you are raising these three babies in three years. Like, of course you're not going to get a shower every day. But I immediately felt like it was my fault. You know, and so there can be such a wide range of reactions it can be, you know, on the numb end, or it can be anger, or it could be anything. And there is no right or wrong when a person either discovers or is told about their partner or spouse's addiction. I think the important thing to validate is whatever they experience is is okay. Yeah. And we don't, you know, if we're on the sidelines of somebody who is just discovering this, we don't need to try to fix them or control their reaction. Mm-hmm. If just just let them experience it. Right. And validate their emotion. We don't have to validate the conclusion that, oh yeah, Katie, your husband's acting out because you're, you know, physically unattractive or sexually undesirable, but to have somebody validate that that is so painful as a Christian woman, that is not what you would have ever expected. And in our faith, we believe in marriages that are eternal and that that just added so much pain. Yeah, I bet This is a man that I dedicated myself to on our wedding day, not only for this life until death do you part, but for all eternity. And to find out that he'd been unfaithful, it just was painful. So, So yeah, everybody could have any range of reaction. Yeah, and that's normal. So give, give yourself that grace if you're in that spot to... Um, to be okay with where you are. Yes. And as you're saying that, I have a thought coming to mind. Um, as new stuff comes up, whether that, let me, let me back up and maybe say it this way. Um, it is more common to have the addiction trickle out over time than to have an addict say, here's everything in one sitting 
And I'm being completely honest. And so as fresh information comes out or as an individual may say, yeah, here it is, but I'm taking care of it and then burrow deeper and they're actually acting out in private and that comes to light. Whenever new information comes to light, it can be like another, we call that D-Day. When we discover the addiction, it can be another D-Day. And it's like you're avalanched all over again, those areas that have not fully healed and you've not fully processed and integrated. It's like you're feeling all of that hurt all over again, even though maybe it's not as significant. Okay, here's an example. So um, last night we were falling asleep and Mark was like, hey, I was thinking about this experience today and I don't know if I've ever told you this. And he told me an experience that he'd had. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't think you've ever told me that. And I want to be clear. It wasn't something that was like a game changer in terms of him being honest about his past. It wasn't like a a, a new um, aspect to his addiction that I wasn't aware of or like new information that was super, super critical, but not to invalidate myself. It was something I'd never heard of before. I didn't know that he had done that. And um, I guess not to leave you hanging, it, it was a good conversation. I have tools now to be present, you know, in this moment and not launch launch into taking it personally. He was very safe. He was very tender and aware of my feelings. But that wasn't the same moment of him calling me and saying, hey, I went to a strip club. Yet it still was something to process and, and, and in being, um, more aware of my emotions now than I have in the past, the way that we move through them is by allowing them. So allowing myself to feel that and be like, wow, that was a little shocking to hear and to feel the gratitude that I am grateful that he's telling me yet that was still painful. And, and to be able to ask him questions then to be like, okay, as I'm checking in with myself, since I now know how to do that and gut check rather than gaslight, right? I feel safe. I feel like he's being honest and truthful with me, but here are some questions. Can I ask you? And he was, you know, really great in that conversation. So I guess just to validate that too, recognizing you may have listeners who hear this episode who maybe have known about, you know, a spouse's or partner's addiction for even decades, but it can be so normal to have that trauma pop up like that. And even when we have moments in our daily living where it's triggered, meaning, something comes in through our five senses. We hear something, we see something, you know, a tone of voice that our brain immediately registers as the original trauma, whether that's this type of a situation or any other form of trauma, our brain is designed to protect us. So it will launch into fight, flight, freeze. Unless we learn how to hover in neutral, if you will, to be able to ground and assess this present moment and say, okay, am I safe? Yes, I'm safe right now. That's just launching into old stuff. No, I'm not safe. Somebody's yelling at me or, you know, I gut check as I've gotten out of my head and grounded, then I need to move to safety so we can learn how to do that. But when I first started learning that, that was validating that I wasn't crazy because I'd be fine. And then all of a sudden not fine. You know what I mean? This has been so insightful. Um, Let's take a quick break, but when you, we get back, would you mind sharing with me how you were able to move through all this trauma, both you and a little bit of his story as well, and finally find healing? Yeah, that would be great. 
How many of you out there feel like your life is chaotic, crazy, and completely awful compared to the norm? What if I were to tell you that you are normal for you? I am so excited to announce that my book, Normal For Me by Tamara K. Anderson is now available for purchase on Amazon. This book took me 10 years to write and I share 20 years worth of lessons learned in my life detours, including being in a car accident and having two of my children diagnosed on the autism spectrum. In this book, I share the secrets of how I made it from despair to peace with God's help. I also include a bonus diagnosis survival guide at the very end of my Normal For Me book. The diagnosis survival guide includes 12 tips to survive and thrive in tough times. Wouldn't you like to know what those are? So what are you waiting for? Grab your copy of Normal For Me today on Amazon. And we're back. I am interviewing Katie Willis today about her coming to realize that her husband was struggling with pornography and she's kind of hit rock bottom about at this point. And Katie, talk to us about where you were when you were hitting rock bottom and how you and Mark were able to find healing finally. Like what, what helped you? So a couple months after Mark had come forward and told me that he had been going or he went to the strip club and he had been relapsing with addiction. Um, we were separated. We ended up being separated twice. And one night I wrote in my journal that, um, here my husband had been disciplined for our church. Um, it's called disfellowshipped in our faith. So he, no longer had a calling. He couldn't take the sacrament. He couldn't pray. I talked about how, um, because of his mental state from the addiction, he hadn't been working. And so we were getting foreclosure notices for the house. We were getting notices threatening to shut off the gas and the electricity. And, um, we had gotten our, I forgot about this. We had gotten our, is it W4, W2 tax form back. And for the whole previous year, because of the unemployment, and then he finally found a job and was underemployed and mental state not working 40 hours a week, we had made $14,000 for our family of five. And I mean, even just our mortgage and HOA, that was a thousand a month. So, and just wrote all of this out and, and was like, I mean, for such a long time, I kept thinking it can't get any worse and then it would, you know, and finally that night writing out in my journal, um, I basically said, I think I can't fix him because I'd been trying, you know, with my appearance or to have a hot dinner ready and the kid's quiet when he'd walk in the door so he wouldn't feel anxious. And, um, you know, I finally said, I think I can't fix him. And I think maybe God can. And I believe Jesus Christ has something to do with it. And I mean, it's kind of funny to look back now because I know all of those things now. But at the time, it was just the tiniest, tiniest flicker of hope that night that I had been trying to fix my husband. I had been trying to control his addiction. I had been trying to hold our lives together, and I finally felt like I couldn't. And so that was kind of my personal turning point. And without even knowing what it was, but at the time, I began to set some boundaries 
and some limits rather than enabling the addiction and just kind of being a doormat and and again believing that I was responsible for it and could control it and fix it. And so um as we were separated the second time, Mark still was not at his own rock bottom. He was very justified, um, very blaming, very critical. And um, as he left the second time, he said, I'm done. Get a lawyer. And so I um, had picked up the phone and I can't even remember. Somebody had given me a referral of a good, of a good divorce lawyer in town and had made the appointment and it was Monday morning. And then I picked up the phone and called the clerk for our bishop, for our clergy, and made an appointment to get in with him. And um, as I sat down and explained and brought him up to speed where he had referred us out to professionals, I mean, he knew he was in over his head and had asked us to work with professionals. Um, Again, we weren't getting the tailored help we needed and um, brought him up to speed and told him, you know, that I was going to move forward with a divorce. I didn't feel good about it but I didn't know what else to do. If Mark didn't even want contact, he didn't even want to talk to me. And I'm so thankful. And, and I would just caution, this is not for every situation all of the time, but he leaned across his desk and looked me square in the eyes. And he said, Katie, if you go through with your divorce, you don't have my blessing. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, Bishop. So what do I do? And he says, I don't know. <laughs> That's between you and the Lord go home and figure it out. And so here I felt like I had already prayed my guts out, but here my clergy, who I believe helps me to uh, have the spiritual support that I need, had told me to go home and work it out with the Lord. So it's like I had a fresh um, drive behind me. And so I prayed formally on my knees as much as I could with three little kids that day and then just kept a constant prayer going in my mind and my heart. And consistently over and over, I had a repeated thought, just see if Mark will talk. Just see if he'll talk. Just see if he'll talk. And I'll never forget my hands were shaky because again, at that point, he was, he was not who he is today. Because of the addiction, it literally changes the brain, the frontal lobe. The same changes that individuals who are addicted to major drugs go through. So, you know, it affects connection and inhibition and reason and logic. So he he was very, very not himself. Anyway, I texted him and I just said, hey, when I put the kids to bed tonight, would you be willing to talk? And he wrote back immediately, yes, I would love that. And I found out later he had hit his rock bottom in that time that reality finally sunk in that, Oh my gosh, I am this close to losing my marriage. Even though my kids will still be my kids we will be divided in custody. I won't have the same relationship with them. Look at my faith. Look at all of these things that are so important to me are almost gone. And he was just like, I, I wish I had chosen when I had the chance. And then my text came in and here he was handed another chance. Now I want to be very clear when you're in that deep, one conversation cannot fix it all. But we stayed up that whole night from nine o'clock at night till six in the morning. And we talked and we talked and we talked. And that is the most open our communication had been in a very, very long time. And by the end of the conversation, we knew that there was still life left in our marriage. We knew that both of us were willing to try. We just had no idea how we were going to salvage it, but we knew we were both committed. 
And then that very week when we decided that we were going to stick this out, that is when we found the CSAT, the therapist who helped us. Um, she, along with other therapists, offered a group therapy program. We immediately signed up for it. We had to wait about six months before they started the next group. We literally sold our plasma to be oh able to afford it. Um, and then then they also recommended private therapy. And so we began private therapy as well as, um, as soon as we could. And then about a few months after that, I found yoga and began a daily yoga practice. At that time, the research wasn't out like it is now. At the time, everybody thought I was nuts and just such a weird hippie, you know. But I knew that I felt better after my daily yoga practice, not only physically, but mentally, emotionally. And I was able to keep up with the rigors of this group therapy program as well. And now because I know more and understand more, I can see that that was a huge piece. And of course, I taught my husband and my kids yoga. And um, the week that we decided to stick it out, we also found a 12-step program. And the one that we attended is one that our church put together. There are a number out there. Um, SAL is uh, an online option that any of your listeners who could access. So it's based off of the Sexaholics Anonymous, but it has kept God in the program. And there are meetings that they can join. Um, I can't remember if it's phone in or online. Another great one that's Christian-based is called Healing Through Christ, and you can find that at healingthroughchrist.org. They have programs for both both the addict and the spouse. Um, we've worked through that program as well and really enjoy that one. That one has phone-in meetings. And even if you don't share my faith as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you would be invited as well. There are phone-in meetings. Um, it's called the Addiction Recovery Program, and you can access that. I'm trying to remember if it's arp.churchofjesuschrist.org or churchofjesuschrist.org slash ARP. It's one okay, of the other. We'll, we'll figure it out and right clean it up thing. for the notes. Yes. yes. Um, but for us, that 12-step program, it was interesting to observe um, our friends who were in the group therapy program. And I want to say this very carefully and non-judgmentally, recognizing there's so many factors. Yes. And... For me, in my situation, by the time we started the group therapy program, Mark was very much willing. And so I don't in any way want to come across judgmental. But it was interesting to observe our friends who only did the professional therapy. They had great tools, but they didn't understand how to access God. And they didn't understand how Jesus Christ could help them heal from trauma or recover from addiction. And we observed our friends who were only going to the 12-step meetings and it's like they just didn't quite know how to navigate. And so we would go every week to our group therapy. We would go every week to our 12-step program. We would take the workbook from the 12-step program home and do the steps between meetings. And that's a pitfall that I've observed, that people will only attend the meetings, which is great. You're getting support. But in order for it to be a recovery group, you have you to, have to go home and do your own work. Is there a different workbook for the spouse and the person who is addicted to the pornography? There is now for our church's 12-step. At the time um, when we very first started, there were separate programs. And then for a while, they overlapped and had us use the same manual. And now they've created a new program. Um, SAL has different manuals as well as Healing Through Christ has different manuals. So 
Now, it's been just in the past decade that the first research came out tying what a partner or spouse goes through with trauma. Up until that point, they were treated, partners or spouses were treated under what's called a codependent model of care. So basically, like, you're only bugged because you need to mind your own business, right? Like, you're checking your husband's phone or putting a GPS tracker because you're just avoiding your own, you know, work, which sometimes there are elements of codependent for an individual to seriously consider. But when you look at a trauma model, it means a person doesn't feel safe and they're trying to create safety. Right. And it's valid that I didn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. And so a person is trying to create safety for themselves through controlling very often is how it looks. And so um, I would highly recommend as you're looking at 12-step programs, and again, we kind of hit on this with therapists, that they're following a trauma model when it comes to a partner or spouse. Um, because otherwise, they can, be, they can be saying things that, like we talked about, would cause the secondary trauma, would have an individual to behave in ways that in other therapeutic settings would be helpful but where the trauma is coming from the partner or the spouse, that's who's hurting, that's who's causing the hurt, then it can be um, it can be harmful to the marriage. It can be hurtful to the individual to be told to act in ways that would that they're not ready yet. That that the order is he has to work, she has to work on their own separate stuff, and then they can come together on the marriage. No, that makes a lot of sense. So let me ask you this. Um, Here you were, you were finally healing. What was the Savior's role in your healing? How did he help you? I love that. Um, I think the easiest way I can explain it, and then I'd love to expound on that, is here we were in this group therapy program. Here we were in 12-step. Here I was on my yoga mat. All of these ways were helping us to kind of organize and lay out the path and the course that we had to take. But my savior was the propelling force behind me having the strength that through his grace and through his love, I was able to take all of those steps. So if we hadn't partnered it with the professional, I think it would have been a lot harder for us to see what needed to be done and to break it down a little bit at a time and step by step and like lay it all out in the big picture. But without Jesus Christ, I would have been working in my own strength. And I feel like there were so many layers to that, that it was the first time in my life that I realized I needed Jesus Christ and I needed the atonement. Up to that point, I had led a pretty great life. I had been, you know, pretty careful. I thought I didn't have any quote black marks, you know, and that, that was my perception of what Jesus Christ was for, was just to clean up our lives when we make mistakes, when we need to repent, which now that's one of those things I look back eight years later with hindsight and I'm like, well, we all need to repent every day, you know, very often every breath, but to learn that there was a breadth and a depth and an expanse that I knew nothing about of my savior. And that is where I feel like I began to explore. And without Jesus Christ, I wouldn't have had the courage to do what I needed to be done to say, okay, I know you've made these types of decisions, Mark. I know that you've treated me this way, but I cannot deny that I know 
our marriage isn't done. That was a very brave choice yes, to make. Yes, it was. <laughs> and to be able to forgive. I love, um, there's a story by Carrie Ten Boom. Am I saying her name right? Yes, yes. And she talks about how, and I apologize if I totally slaughter it, but how she had been in the concentration camps. And as she got out, she went all over spreading messages of hope and talked about Jesus Christ and how we can be forgiven and repent. And she said after one of her presentations, she saw a gentleman walking up to her and it was one of her Nazi guards. And he extended his hand and was basically like, yes, think, you know, aren't we thankful for Jesus Christ because he forgives us. And she talked about how in that moment she was like, oh my gosh, here I'm preaching about forgiveness. How can I forgive this man who personally harmed me in such a horrible way? Right. But then she talked about as She said a silent prayer. She learned in that moment that God not only gives us the command to forgive, but he gives us the strength to forgive along with it. And so I've been able to forgive Mark because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And I've been able to heal because of Jesus Christ. So I feel like that's still very vague, but because it is such a personal experience, whether we've been through trauma or not, as we find our savior, he's going to lead us into the intricate details of our lives. He's going to hold our hand as we uproot and look at things and examine our patterns and our programming as he changes our heart. That is such a personally tailored process. And I wish there was some way for me to articulate more clearly. No, I think you've done a great job. So basically having the Savior in your life helped you have the strength to not only um, go through with everything, but it also gave you the strength to forgive. The power that perhaps you could have done some of it on your own, but... you know, he, he amplified what little you were willing to give to be enough. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Because I believe that God has given us our agency and I believe that he will never override that. And I believe that the only part that my savior can't do is for me to turn and look and invite him and ask him to come into my life. And as I do, that's grace. That is a free gift that we don't have to earn and we don't have to hit a certain level of achievement or be worthy. It is available when we ask for it. You know, as you were talking, I also thought of another dimension to Christ that I've learned here in later years. In the past two and a half years, Mark and I have decided to go public. That was a very private and personal decision, but we hit a point where we realized there are so many people who are stuck and hurting just like we were. And unless we're willing to name it as pornography and sex addiction and betrayal trauma, there are people we cannot help. And I look at the beautiful experiences that we've had in being very open online, um, through social media, in our congregation, in our city and locally. Um, That is a dimension of Christ's love and his power that I've been able to experience as my heart has been expanded and I am a different person and I have compassion now. His love, Christ's love, his charity has filled me to want to make that better for other people. And that has been incredible. And I find it so interesting every time we think that we are helping somebody or giving to them, 
it just comes back a hundredfold. That God blesses us. And even just to have that experience alone, to know what charity feels like, to know how to have that tiny taste of how our savior feels about another human on this planet and to have that drive and that desire to make their life better and to make it easier and to share love. That is such a phenomenal aspect of the atonement that I'm thankful we've been able to experience as well. That's, that's neat. It's like you get a taste of what he does just in, in minuscule. Yes. Because he loves us because he's experienced all our pains and griefs and sorrows and all that. And so you get, because you've experienced this trauma in your life, you can also relate to these other spouses who have been through betrayal trauma. And so it, it is, it's a minuscule, uh, taste of what he must feel for each of us, that love and compassion and, and, and we don't have to earn it. Like you said, I love that you said that. So what is one of your favorite Bible verses that has gotten you through all of this? I love Psalms, be still and know that I'm God. The Hebrew translation for be still is a word I'm going to pronounce it as Rafa. I don't know okay. if that's the accurate <laughs> pronunciation because I don't know Hebrew, um, but it means sink, relax. And then the type of no in this particular verse is translated as yada, which is referring to an experiential knowing. And so, you know, it's a familiar verse, be still and know God. But as we relax, as we sink, again, we've talked about Jesus Christ and his grace. That is how we can face horrendous, heart-wrenching things. Come to know God. And come to know God. Yeah. Is because we can sink into it and relax versus, you know, when I first started this journey, I was kicking and screaming and dragging my feet. And I was like, God, why are you allowing this cow pie in my life? I have always been faithful. I have always been virtuous. I am serving in my church. I'm doing all the things that I know that I'm supposed to be doing. Why would you allow this? And so as we can sink and relax, that is only through Christ, I believe that we are able to say, wow, this is not what I would choose with my mortal perspective and understanding, but it is. These are the circumstances before me. And that is how we come to know God in a very personal way. Not just know of him like, oh, I know President Trump, (laughs) right? Like to know God. And you know, what's coming to mind, um, one of the forms of yoga that I practice is called Kundalini and they're is a teacher named Yogi Bhajan. He brought it to the West. And he talks about how if we cannot see God in all, we cannot see God at all. And I love that, that even when we go through difficult things, we have our Savior at our side so we can sink and relax and to be able to see God and come to know him through our tribulation. Yeah. No, and I... And that has been a theme as I've interviewed people that they have come to know God in their worst moments of their life. And often we wouldn't choose those worst moments, but we're thankful for the relationship we have because of those hard times. Yes. Without these experiences, I was a very flat and two-dimensional person. And you talked, you know, a minute ago about the compassion That's where my compassion is stemmed because when you are to that point where you are just totally desperate Mm -hmm. and you feel like there's no help around you, but God, Mm -hmm. that is hard to relate to unless you've been to that point in some way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Oh my gosh. Um, now if someone has just totally resonated and they want to reach out and contact you, how do they do that? Um, so will you include in the show notes? Yes, I will include the links in the show notes, but do tell us. Okay, great. I blog my heart out. And then I also have information for my yoga therapy courses, which I'm hoping to start an online school next year. Ooh, fun. So if you're interested in um, pre-recorded yoga therapy classes, um, I focus on consciousness. So I have a course about becoming conscious of the body, becoming conscious of the mind is another course. A third course is becoming conscious of the soul. Um, abiding in Christ, learning to live life in a heart-centered way. I also teach kids, so I'm hoping to get a kids course up, a parents course as well, and then a couples course. So if you're interested, watch for details in the coming months there. And then also my brain wellness um, is there on the blog. And then I am on Instagram and I am on Facebook. Awesome. Katie Willis on both of those? Um, I think it's Be Still with Katie Willis. I think Facebook is different than Instagram, but we'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, speaking of Be Still, that is what my business is named, Be Still Services. Oh, very good. Well, it makes sense since that's your verse, right? Yeah, now you know. (laughs) Now we know why. Any final thoughts before we wrap it up? I think the biggest thing is you're not alone. It can seem when we look at each other's lives, especially with social media, we look at everybody and think, well, they've got a perfect life. They've got a perfect marriage. Nah, 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 nah. We don't see the stack of dirty dishes that they slid out of the way, you know, to take the picture of their kids. We don't know that they just had an argument with their spouse because they just posted this mushy, you know, post. You're not alone. And you never can be alone as God's child through this. So reach, reach out, reach out to others. Um, it has been a huge privilege to be the starting point for a lot of individuals. So if I'm the first person that you've ever heard talk openly about this, great. I would love to help sift and and be a temporary support as we connect you with long-term resources, you know, and along those lines too, there are so many resources that are now available. It may still be a little bit tricky to find them, but it's getting easier and easier every passing year. And so you're not alone. There is hope. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. And I literally am a living witness that he can change people. He's changed my heart. He can help you heal. It's been such a privilege to watch my husband and to observe from the point that he was at when he was fully acting out to the gentle, loyal, and kind man of God that he is now. And so that hope is in Jesus Christ. And as we not only work hard, but also smart, whether we are battling the addiction ourselves or we're a partner or spouse supporting the addict and combine not only our faith in God and our faith in Christ, but also in tools and working with professionals and using um, protocols and techniques that help with trauma and with addiction, then we'll be able to heal. We'll be able to peel this back We'll be able to move forward one step at a time. So there is absolutely hope. Awesome. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Thank you for sharing your story of hope. Thank you for having me today. It's been a privilege. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. I know that there are many of you out there that are going through a hard time, and I hope you found things that have been useful today as you listen to the podcast. If you would like to access the show notes from today's podcast, visit my website, It is storiesofhopepodcast.com. 
That is where you'll find favorite quotes from today's episode and shareable memes. And those are fun because you can share them with your friends on social media. You will also find the links mentioned throughout today's episode so you don't have to remember what those were. And also all the tips that were shared. Sometimes tips are shared so much throughout an episode you forget. What were those great things? So go to the show notes, storiesofhopepodcast.com to look up these fantastic resources. You know, if someone kept coming to mind during today's episode, perhaps that means that you should share this with them. Maybe there was a story shared or a tip that they really, really need to hear. So go ahead and share this episode with them. May God bless you, especially if you are struggling with hope to carry on and with the strength to keep going when things get tough. Remember to walk with Christ and he will help bear that burden. Above all else, remember God loves you.